Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is August 1st, 2016, and I am your host, William Hill, as usual. Today we're going to sit down and, and speak with um, a pastor, a teaching elder in the PCA about the most recent uh, PCA General Assembly that was held in Mobile, Alabama. But before we get to that conversation, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we discussed, discuss some of these uh, issues. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for uh, the use of this technology. We thank you for the ability that we have to uh, sit around a table and discuss the very important issues that affect your church. So we'd ask that you give us wisdom, give uh, Daniel Jarstifer wisdom as he answers some of these questions and as we talk back and forth that it would be edifying and good for your people, good for your church, and glory and glorify your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned in, in the prayer, we're going to be talking with uh, Daniel Jarstifer. He is the pastor of Christ Our Hope Presbyterian Church, and that is in um, South, County. South County. That's right, South County, Rhode Island. Um, maybe he'll explain a little bit about what that means in a minute. But uh, he's also a board member of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and a graduate as well. He graduated in 2003. So we're going to get to this that conversation in, in just a minute. Just a really quick update as to what we're doing here on the podcast. We're continuing, obviously, working on uh, new guests and topics, and we have some really exciting things planned for the future, uh, including uh, the graduate spotlight um, segments that we're going to be doing starting in September. Those segments, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll sit down and talk with graduates of the seminary, 15-minute spots, um, where they are, what their ministry is looking, what it looks like, uh, the labors they're involved in, th- the needs they have, and, and that kind of thing. So uh, look forward to that uh, starting in September. You can find out more information about that at our website at confessingourhope.com. Of course, if you want to find out more information about the seminary, you can simply go to gpts.edu, and there you'll see all the information regarding um, the seminary. So, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking with Daniel Jarstifer. He's a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, and we're going to be talking about this most recent PCA General Assembly that was held in Mobile, Alabama. So, Daniel, welcome to the program. I know you listen often, and um, so... I'm not sure you ever thought you'd be on that side of the microphone on this program, but anyway, welcome to it. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Daniel, real, real quick, um, just as an overview, uh, you've been to many GAs. Uh, you've been ordained for quite a while now. And um, what was your takeaway, uh, just in general, from this GA as compared to the other ones you've been to? Well, Bill, it seems to me that as uh, I've been going since 2000, and it seems that uh, we've had some tense, um, even maybe combative uh, GAs at times, important issues were being discussed and the church was somewhat divided, Mm -hmm. sometimes very closely divided, at least with the presbyters at GA. And then I think more recent times, it seems as though we kind of calm down maybe, step back, slow Mm -hmm. down, and uh, more willingness to hear each other. Um, I don't know that we had the full escalation of a, you know, controversy or being very divided for the most part in this assembly, but some issues certainly were uh, much more divisive and um, brought about a lot more debate, and at times, of course, it got heated. I don't think it's, in that regard, this is one of the most intense GAs that we've had. Um, For myself, personally, when I was younger, I felt like I had to speak in the microphone more often, (laughs) Um, and uh, I've learned perhaps some uh, disciplined self-control and 
waited to see if perhaps somebody else would say something and some people may still say oh no we see at the microphone a lot but i'm purposely more restrained and try to be helpful in my comments yeah i think that you're at the microphone probably more than i've ever been i remember my first ga i asked as a ruling elder i asked dr pipo what you know my first general assembly you have any wisdom he says i'll tell you what dr smith told me at my first ga sit down and be quiet that wasn't the word he used but sit down and be quiet and learn mm-hmm. so i've tried to employ that but uh, certainly there are times to speak, but anyway. Well, if I can just comment on that, I think you know, for new ruling elders or teaching elders, that's that's very important wisdom to mm-hmm. you know, take out an assembly or two, kind of get a feel for how it works, the lay of the land. But then when you, if you do feel compelled, you just, you've got to say something, think about what you're going to say. Yep. You know, have a plan, you know, make yourself some notes. Um, it, it tries the patience of the court when men go to the microphone and they ramble and they hem and they haw. It eats up precious time, and it's just very helpful if, if you think about what the issues are, uh, bring Scripture to play. Mm-hmm. I, I really would appreciate to see more of that. Rarely do presbyters open their Bibles and yep. you know, argument something, some argument from Scripture or the Book of Church Order or the Constitution. It's more what they think ought to be done, often emotional appeals. And yep. I think that's, it makes the work of the church inefficient, and uh, it makes it hard to debate an issue. Yep. No, I agree with you completely, and um, this year was no different. We we saw, I think, a wide spectrum of that. We saw some with Scripture in hand. I'm thinking of one man who, during a particularly difficult debate, was um, quoting, reading right from the Scriptures, and then, of course, we saw the other side of that, the emotional appeal, and, well, if you vote for this, your, wife will, your wives will love you more kind of thing. So uh, we're going to come to that discussion, of course, in a minute. Right. But, uh, but so your overall takeaway from this GA is compared to others, middle of the road GA or better or worse? I don't know that it was particularly helpful in uh, moving the church forward. I don't know that it was particularly, particularly detrimental. You know, okay. Next year, uh, with the study committee report that we'll talk about, when that comes back, uh, it remains to be seen what that's going to be like. Sure. What were some of the positive takes, takeaways from this GA? Um, it was in Mobile, of course, and I think it was done that way, uh, if I understand uh, what the permanent committees were trying to do uh, was to involve more ruling elders. That didn't work out as I think they planned, um, but it was a mobile. And so what were some of the positive things, both informally and formally, at least from your perspective? Well, I thought the venue was great. Mobile is oh, yeah. a great town. Yep. I thought their convention center was very functional. It yep. was very pleasant, uh, open air, light, and a nice setting right on the, the river more than the bay. But uh, it was a good setting. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the city was comfortable. There was a lot of good restaurants. Just, you know, I think the set was, the place was good. But, um um, I didn't attend uh, any of the uh, seminars this year. I'm not big on that. If they at all distract me from the work that I'm there to do as a presbyter, I try to avoid them. Um, sure. But certainly I have been benefited. I have profited from some of the seminars in the past. I appreciate some of the ones that uh, were done by the the group with uh, Richard Phillips and trying mm-hmm. to make sure that we maintain the distinction on justification and sanctification. And I think there's been some helpful ones, and there were helpful ones this year. It's just my schedule. I did not get in there. But that's, that can be a positive aspect. Sure. Well, the positive is um, we usually should end on the positive. We're going to try to do that in this discussion and, and understand that as we're talking about this GA, uh, for those who are listening to the program, uh, we're both teaching elders in the 
PCA and, and, the, and strongly confessionally minded men. And so the tendency for us both will to be to gravitate maybe into a very negative uh, type of display. That is not our intention. We're trying to be constructive here in our discussion. But I do have to ask the question. As you experienced the three days, it, well, actually for you it was, well, three and a half for you, I think. It was four for me. Um, as you did both the work in the admin committee, you and I both served on that, and then work on the floor in the in the general uh, assembly, what was your takeaway from a negative perspective? Were there things that concerned you and issues that you feel going forward we really need to address? I think what I had, my probably main concern uh, in a negative sense, a criticism, a critique, not to be critical, but a mm-hmm, critique is, mm-hmm. and I've been observing this for several years now, is that as uh, I guess I would just say as a denominator, at least the the, uh, the presbyters that are present, there's the overall uh, trajectory of a poor hermeneutic. Um, when I hear men argue uh, a failure to understand scriptures and apply them accurately or even a hermeneutic of the event or the discussion, the debate. And, uh, and of course, that leads us in a very bad direction. I remember a couple of years ago, I brought the minority report on intinction. And because I was on the overtures committee, once I'd had my say, which I got to have say on the floor is bringing that report. Typically, the members, they, they, they can't speak to the issue. But as I sit down and listened, I was really, just, I was with my back. I was at the front, couldn't see anybody. I recognized a few voices, but just the overall conversation hermeneutically, uh, just it left me bewildered of how men uh, process, how they think and reason through issues. And that's, I've noticed that as a continuing norm, and I find that very uh, discouraging, uh, disappointing, and in some measure alarming. Do you think it is possible that the reason we see that, I mean, and, and I agree with you, I think uh, in the speeches, even in the informal conversations in the hallway, um, and I have, I've had those, I know you have as well, and then not only that, but from the the different reports that are given, whether it's the majority report, a minority report on different issues, do you think it's possible that some of that is because of lack of preparation before they come to the General Assembly? They just show up and they get hit with these issues, and I could go down. There's a big rabbit trail I could go down here if, if we had the time. But do you think that's part of it? I do. You know, elders are pressed, whether they're ruling elders or teaching elders. They have demands of their vocation, whether, you know, it's church in the church as a pastor or in their uh, their field. And um, the materials, there's a lot of materials to digest. And there's a certain number of them that uh, would really compel some research and mm-hmm. reading and preparation. And, you know, I, I struggle. You know, by the time I get the commissioner's handbook and try to get through it and, and to look at some other issues and it, it is demanding and i think a couple of years ago when we had the uh the report on the insider movement the first time they bought the report and uh, uh there was uh, i don't know for whatever reason to be inclusive whatever they wanted to in, in, uh, add in the minority report and uh, one of the presbyters who we know went at the microphone and said have you even read that in this minority report it says that Allah and the triune God are the same God that we serve the same God and that's what this is advocating and you know there was a, a kind of a sense of a, maybe a collective you know yeah you know, intake you know yeah. and you know why didn't I know that have the I option yeah. left the room yep and, and it seems as though right. that uh, there were many men on that issue it was a long report it was a lot to get through I, I'll be honest I did not read all of it it was a lot to take in do you think part of that is because um, with all due respect 
to the state of clerk's office. I mean, they have a, a lot of work to do, and, and I don't, I'm not trying to be disparaging by any means. Um, but one of the frustrations I've had as a ruling elder, now a teaching elder, is that we get the materials very late in the game. And as you mentioned, we're very busy, um, just day-to-day -day stuff. And then this is added in, and two weeks before General Assembly or a month before General Assembly, now you want me to weed through 2,500 pages of material and come well-prepared to make intelligent votes. Do you think that's part of the yeah. problem? Well, it could be, but you know, I'm sure timing is a challenge for them to have all the different things available that must go in there. And you see that because there's always a supplement as other things become right. available that's to get right. that out. And um, yep. it just requires the work. I mean, as whatever our vocation is, men, you know, we're constantly faced with that and prioritizing, and, yep. and perhaps uh, we just all need to give it more of a priority and, and know that's going to happen every year and open up our schedules to make sure that we have time to do our due diligence there. Sure. Look, that's one potential reason for some of the bad argumentation or maybe not as carefully um, um, crafted argumentation we see. What are some of the other possibilities? Um, I think a lack of understanding of our confessional standards. Mm -hmm. You know, that uh, I've, I've made it a goal. I, I haven't done it every year, but my goal is to read through the entire Westminster standards, confession, the catechisms every year, just to keep them fresh. Mm -hmm. In addition to you know, using them as I do regularly, but just read through the whole. Yep. And I keep that hole before me, and I think that would be helpful for the men. And you know, we've all been in presbyteries where a man will be asked, "Have you read the Confession and the Catechisms?" And it's not unheard of for a man to say no. Um, and then these men end up being presbyters in a presbytery, in our sessions, uh, and general assembly, and taking vows to uphold those that they haven't read. Right. Which is kind of frightening in, in and of itself, because how can you, in good conscience, take a vow to something right. you haven't read entirely? Right. Well, I think that probably leads to uh, something I said to you before we went on air, and that uh, for years, probably close to 20 years now, um, my concern has been is that uh, one of the greatest problems in the church, and I'm speaking broadly, um, in the evangelical church, mm -hmm. so we can use that term, that we have men in office that are not qualified to be in office. And uh, there's a host of reasons for that. You know, men are nominated and approved for a host of reasons. It's pragmatic. And uh, you know, as we've been preparing, I'm here this week for the Summer Institute. And as we've read, the men, uh, many of them are Westminster divines of that time, uh, on the pastoral office. And it's a high bar. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been a ruling elder. I was a ruling elder since '93, and I just I've seen that bar lowered incrementally, little by little, and that does not serve the church well. Why do you think the bar has been lowered? I mean, this is we're running a little bit off. Uh, off. Actually, I will use this discussion to bring us back to a particular sure. issue of the GA. But why do you think we've lowered? The, why do you think that bar, at least from your perspective, has been lowered? I think it's a cultural pressure. We we live in a day where we have young people grow up and they're affirmed in everything. They show up for soccer practice, play get a few trophy. games, they get a trophy. Yeah. You know, we, you know, we're just very reticent to tell a man to go back. To I can remember when I was a brand new elder, I was on the examinations committee, and we did tell men to go back. And sometimes in presbytery back in those years, a man would be told to go back for further study. Someone would be assigned to help him. But in the last 10, 12 years, I cannot remember a time when that's happened. I've been in five different presbyteries, and I just cannot recall seeing that in recent history. Now, maybe it's happening in other presbyteries. That may be the case. But I think we're just reluctant to say to someone, you're not ready. And when you listen to the Westminster divines uh, and read their writings, like they're, they're more than ready to say, you're, you're, you're not there yet. You're not 
you know, measure up. This, this is a high office. You know, it is, it's the premium office, and it's, what's at stake is too vital to lower the bar. You know, we're caring for the people of God. We're maintaining the honor of Christ. We're entrusted with his message. And uh, it's not a place for uh, political politics and uh, shenanigans. Right. There's, just, yep. there's no place for that. Yep. This is a high and holy office. Yep, I agree. Whether I, it's teaching elder or ruling elder. Yeah, totally. Deacon. Yeah, totally agree with you. I mean, one thing... Uh, I was a five-year student at Greenville. I think you did a little bit longer. I think you mentioned you did your Six last years. year. Yeah, took, it took three years three, to do my senior. And year. it's not because he was sloughing off either. He was doing the work, um, and it's similar to what I was probably more so than I was doing in my last year. But one thing I've always appreciated about this place is that is constantly mentioned. And it doesn't really matter what class it is, it, whether it's church history, whether it's logic. You hear the same theme beat into us over the four years if you do the normal track and it feel like uh, Daniel and I a little bit longer and that's a positive thing because you leave here with that sense and realization that when you when those men lay hands on you and you're ordained into the gospel ministry you, you just took an office that's greater than any office on the face of the earth and don't get arrogant about it because you don't deserve it and, right. and that's I, that was my takeaway I remember my wife asking me after I got ordained do you feel any different I said well no <laughs> Um, I, I'm humbled by the fact that the Lord would even, knowing my heart the way he does, would would even bother to use me in this mm -hmm. way. All right. it just, it's humbling. But what Daniel just said is extremely important. And that's one thing Greenville Seminary is very, very conscious of, and I, one thing I very much appreciated. But tying that to the General Assembly is is an issue that every year we do, we do this wrap-up. And every year I ask the same question, and I bring up the same issue. Uh, we go to GA, and there's a huge disparity between teaching elders and ruling elders in attendance. Right. This year, it was dramatically different. Almost three to one. Yeah. I think maybe yeah. right around. It was that. like 800. I'm rounding them off. It was like 800 to 200, or 750 to 250. It was that bad of right. a difference. It's the worst I've seen, and I've only been to four personally as an officer. You've been to far more. Um, does that help the church at all? No, it doesn't, Bill. And uh, we need a really dollar participation. And I suspect that a number of our listeners are in smaller congregations. I mean, there's certainly listeners who are not in the PCA, but the principle would apply whatever you're – if you're in a Presbyterian denomination, that uh, your ruling elders need to be in the courts of the church. Uh, men need to be encouraged. Uh, they need to be helped and facilitated to get there. And many smaller churches or even medium-sized churches, they don't send their men because it's not worth it. It's the, the cost to benefit analysis. And, I, I, you know, it's a business mindset. And you know, we're talking about the church. And I urge churches, get your ruling elders to General Assembly. And I can imagine some small churches saying, but we can't afford it. Well, it may not be in your budget. And what I would urge the members of the church is to approach their session and say, we want this. This is a priority. We want at least one of our ruling elders. Every PCA church can send two ruling elders. And I believe that even a small congregation that might have 10 or 12 families could do that. You know, say, session, we, we take the challenge on ourselves. We want to send our elder. And if a family says, we'll contribute $100 
extra to a GA fund at the end of the year, there'd be twelve hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, if they would commit two hundred, and some could do more, you know, two hundred dollars in the course of twelve months from a family unit, then they certainly could send one elder. And if they double up on their rooming and you know drive together some of the other expenses, for easily you know no more than three thousand dollars for most locations, they could have two elders represent them. And I am certain that that would make a difference in the General Assembly to have those ruling elders there, even if the only thing they do is come with their conscience and vote. Yep. That was, that was what I was going to ask. Uh, I shouldn't say it that way after four years listening to Dr. Pipe, but don't say. I was just going to say. <laughs> but anyway, why is that important, though? I, you know, I, I hear people say that all the time. Well, if we had more ruling elders participating at General Assembly, we wouldn't be where we are now. And some of these critical issues like the Women's Study Committee and the Lord's Day issue of the Review of Presbyterian Records, we're going to get to those particular subjects. <coughs> we wouldn't be where we are now. Why, why is that the case if, if we had an even split of TEs and, and REs at GA? Well, Bill, I'd say it would be a matter of opinion as to why of course, that is. Of but, course. Uh, you know, it seems to me that ruling elders, particularly our, our men uh, from our confessional and conservative congregations. I'm not suggesting we have liberal congregations. I think we have some that are moderate or progressive, but uh, uh, they tend to have uh, a different view on the theological issues mm-hmm. and uh, will vote that view. Um, you know, a lot of our new churches are being planted. I've been to the presbyteries and seen church plants in there. They're not typically. And again, I'm speaking somewhat, I guess, stereotypically, but they're not typically confessional churches that are being planted. And um, I can just hear some of my brothers you know, objecting to that. But uh, it's an observation. It's my opinion. I may be very wrong about that. But it just it doesn't seem to me that the PCA is planting confessional churches at this time. And so, therefore, you know, the ruling elders may not be as well. Yeah, but we'd I like think, to be wrong about that. Yeah, I, think, I hope I, that I yeah, am. But we, again, you know, five presbyteries, you know, I, that's, I'm observing what may be a trend. Maybe all the other 75, you know, there's absolutely something different. But, yeah, right. But anyway, I think that the majority of our ruling elders in a majority of our PCA congregations would take a vote on the floor general assembly that would be confessional. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. And is that because the ruling elders are less likely to get caught up in the? Well, as it's as like my one of my ruling elders jokingly said to me when I was ordained as a teaching elder, he goes, "Now you've joined the club." <laughs> now you know, I, I, and I know he was kidding, but there is a but that didn't come out of out of a, in a vac from right, a vacuum. Right. There's a sense in which the teaching elders kind of join this club. I know, I don't know how else to express it. Is it? Maybe if we had more ruling elders participating, it's because they're not in that club, as it were, and so the politics of the issues are not as pressing to them. Well, I I think, again, if you have ruling elders who are in the office because they're qualified to be in the office, they're going to speak. Uh, they're going to speak with wisdom. Uh, they're going to challenge their teaching elder. I'm very thankful. The three elders that I serve with, if I'm wrong about something, they will challenge me. Yep, good. These men are grounded. They're, they know the confession. They're committed to it. They know the Book of Church order. And they're not going to sit by and just because the teaching elder wants to do something, say, okay. You know, they're going to say, well, wait a minute. What does the Scripture say about that? Yep. What does the Bible say about it? And that's what an elder should do. Yep. You know, the elders are the first line, the front line defense in the pulpit. They're there. They hear their pastor preach. They're there to care for the flock. And uh, a qualified man is going to do that work. And that 
at times means he's going to speak up and say, time out, stop, this isn't right, this is wrongheaded, and we need that. Yep. Too bad. And, and sadly, we the teaching elders ought to be doing that as well. Yes. <laughs> and we, we have a lot to do. Yeah, we have a lot to do. Well, th- this is always an issue. Um, what is a, what are what are some solutions? Um obviously, Daniel, this is from your own opinion, of course, I have mine as how we can resolve some of these these problems. Because let's face it, I mean, I'm a practical guy. I'm a regular guy. Mm -hmm. And I was a ruling elder. And when I was a ruling elder, I was in seminary. I had work to do. And to to give up a week, pay for it out of my own pocket, you've you've already covered a little bit of that, to have to take vacation time for some men would have to take vacation from their jobs. Um, It's a hardship for them frankly and and so what how do we solve that well i think again it goes back to remembering what we're doing this is an office that represents christ we're charged to care for his church you know again i'm thinking of um, edward reynolds and uh, george gillespie some of the men i've read this past few weeks in preparation for being here particularly these last few days um i'm a busy man (laughs) but uh just stressing the point we're caring for the body of christ we're caring for the body of christ that uh we need to protect her and uh, these things matter they matter very much and it's a matter of priority and it's back to remember we're pilgrims this isn't home we're on a journey Uh, we're involved in the building the church Uh, it's a tremendous privilege as well as a responsibility uh, to do that and I think with that mindset uh, that maybe it'll stir us up Mm -hmm. uh, out of some of the the doldrums we get caught in and the lethargy that can overtake us or just the discouragement you know I can imagine a man going his first general assembly and every vote that he voted on the the majority was against him and he just comes away thinking well that was a waste but it's not yeah it reminds me of this year a nominating committee listeners are going to be completely what about what I'm talking about but there's a bunch of committees that are recommended to the floor, and we vote for different people to be on teaching elders, ruling elders. There were 16 different votes. I lost everyone. <laughs> and again, it can be discouraging. Um, but it's interesting to me as you were talking, I to thinking about the fact that that as a session we vet ruling elders that are nominated by the congregation to serve on the session, and um, maybe it's time sessions start asking the ruling elders the hard question like, "Are you willing?" To go to General Assembly every year if the session nominates you as one of the two guys to go. And if they say, no, I don't want to go to General Assembly, maybe, I don't know. I get get your opinion on that, but maybe that would be a a point of saying, well, why not, of course. And if you're steadfast in that determination not to go, maybe you shouldn't be serving in the office. Because it is the work of a presbyter. That's right. That's part of the calling of the office is to do the work in the courts of the church. I think another thing I would do is I appeal to some of our larger churches that have the means to see it as uh, an opportunity to to help some of our small churches get their elders there. Great idea. Um, I think that's part of our connectionalism. It's part of being Presbyterian. It's part of being covenantal. We have small faithful churches there and it is a burden you know, yep. i think of the, my last ministry context uh, we managed to go i mean the ruling elder paid his own way but we managed for me to go and it was it was a sacrifice but it was important yep and uh, sure it would have been great if uh, you know a large church in the presbytery said hey you know we'll we'll pay half of it or something like that so on the other thing not not to beat this too much but uh, there's hospitality i've stayed with families i told the host committee i said i can't afford to get a hotel you know find me some place to stay they have them i've had delightful visits staying yep. with families and i and i know that they, they, the admin committee or 
is it the admin? Whoever, the host committee, they, um, they do make those arrangements. Yes. And so we don't want to make it sound like, well, the GA just, you know, locks us out and we're, we're spending thousands of dollars. There are other ways to do this, I think, is our point. Right. And, um, and, and you raise an interesting point about the large churches. So one of the things that uh, the listeners know, I, I'm pastoring a very small church in Marion, North Carolina. You're familiar with the congregation. At least you were at one time. And we're small. Uh, they sent me. They paid for everything, uh, expenses, housing, the whole, the whole nine yards. They did it. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, but you're right. I think if our larger churches would say, hey, look, uh, we can throw that church a couple hundred dollars. And if four churches did that, that would be almost half the bill mm-hmm. right there by itself to send the men. Elders doubling up in the rooms. That's <laughs> Funny right. story. My first pastorate, uh, I was going there as a ruling elder. Uh, we roomed together, GA, because I was representing the congregation. I was still presently serving here yeah. in the Greenville area yep. as their commissioner. I think it's the only time they've had one. And uh, I think uh, we paid for the room, and they paid for something else. And, you know, we uh, double up in the beds. You know, I, I laugh because I, I sleep next to a ruling elder that I'm going to soon be serving with. And, you know, most men are just cringe. That's awkward, but it's important. Yep. You know, and we're men. We can do this thing. It, it doesn't have to be. Uh, we find ways to get there. Yeah, it's a, it goes back to an expression I'm, I've used many times with my congregation, my wife, my kids. Um, you do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do it, you'll find a way to get it done. Right. And and it is important. And it's and it's important. And that's, that's right. we probably uh, we we've probably that, that on that yeah. one. Yeah. Well, so the ruling elder teaching elder issue that that comes up every year when we talk about this, and um, I, I suspect it'll continue. I I do think there are other solutions outside of what we've discussed. Um, delegated assembly, which will never happen in the PCA, at least I don't think it will, um, which helps solve some of these issues. Um, I don't know changing the dates. I know two years from now we're going to a two-day assembly, mm-hmm. um, and they're hoping that that's going to help alleviate some of this. I don't know if it will or not. We'll, we'll, time will tell, and we'll see. But the important issue is to realize that it's an important issue, right. and we need to be involved, whether you're a ruling elder or a teaching elder. And if you are a ruling elder and you really want to go, go to your session and say, I want to go. What can you guys do? I want to be there. And, you know, be proactive about it. Don't wait for other guys to come to you. Just make it, you know, get out there and shake some trees and yep. see what falls out. Ask the folks in the congregation to have a yard sale and raise the money. To <laughs> that's go. right. Just find yeah. a way. Yep, that's right. All right, so the first night, of course, uh, every year we elect a moderator. Um, the last two GAs I've been to, I, I wouldn't exactly call it an election. Um, there was one person, and they were just the moderator. Um, your takeaway from the moderator this year as far as – um, we only had one, so there wasn't an election. Um, he just was approbation. Yeah, right. And um, I don't want to comment on this moderator, yeah. but I, I'll make a comment or two about moderators. The process. Yeah, the, the moderator is very important um, to help the assembly move along, getting the work done. Just like a, a moderator in the session, a moderator mm-hmm. in the presbytery, um, you need a man who has the ability to keep up with many things at one time. Yep. And there, there, there are those to help him to keep up with people go to the microphones. Yeah, it's not an easy job. <laughs> but uh, uh, a man who knows the Constitution. Yeah. And because there will be challenges mm-hmm. and uh, that he can uh, rightly divide the Constitution. And I think that uh, as I think back over a number of years, I'm not thinking of this moderator, uh, but just the to get a bad ruling from the moderator when he's challenged uh, 
on something. You know, it's a point of order. You know, the Constitution Confession says, or the Book of Church Order says, or even my very first assembly, the Scripture says, and uh, we refused to uh, heed that. It was a sad day. Um, hmm. But you need a man because the the tendency from the floor is for maybe because of expediency, the presbyters just want to move along, is they, they sustain the chair. Uh, I'm hard-pressed to remember a general assembly that I've been to since 2000 where the moderator made a ruling and he was not sustained. Yep. And um, – I've seen a number of challenges, but none of them are ever sustained. Right. And yeah. that's, so that's important to have it. But again, more often than not, somebody has already decided who's going to be nominated. And uh, you know, it's unusual to have more than two, certainly. And a lot of times there's only one. Now, we go back and forth between the teaching elder and ruling elder. Yep. And this year it was a teaching elder, right? Yes. Yeah, this year it was a teaching elder. The outgoing moderator is a ruling elder. And um, I thought he did a great job last year. And and I thought the moderator this year moved us along. I mean, yes. I think didn't always agree with everything he did, of course, but moved us along, right. and that was very important. Um, as 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 the custom in the PCA the General Assembly, there's three worship services every year. Um, I'm just giving the information. We're not going to really comment on these things. Um, and then we do the, the business of the church really starts in earnest as far as the assembly goes on Wednesday morning. Um, we, we do the moderator Tuesday night, approve the docket, and then we all leave. Um, and that's when we got into the major issues, um, the first one being um, the review of prostrate records, which usually gets a lot of attention. And in that review, there was one particular issue um, that was that had a, a little bit of discussion. I don't think it was a lot of discussion, but it was over the Lord's Day. And um, no surprise to the listeners of this program, um, Product of Greenville Seminary, very strong Sabbath position, Westminster Standard 21, 7, and 8. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I believe it, agree with it, um, took vows to support it. But this man took a position that said, well, I would never teach this, but I don't think the fourth commandment requires the Lord's, the, the, the Sabbath to be on the first day of the week. Do you remember that discussion? I do. And uh, does that's in the fact that it was supported by the assembly. Does that give right. give you a sense of where well, we are? The amount of RPR is an exception, as I recall. Yeah, there was a minority report, and it was an exception of substance that was that's voted right. the, against. The majority was okay with it, but there right. was the minority saying, "No, this is not acceptable." Right. And again, this is uh, issues on the Lord's Day are exceptions. Uh, I think they're significant and important matters, but they're typical. And uh, typically, there's a collective yawn, and let's just move along. It's not seen as valid. Did you see this one, though, however? I mean, I've, I, I agree with you. Usually, even at Prestory level, we get, you know, recreation clause gets, 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 gets whacked and, and, and so forth. But this one took a different flavor than I've seen, that I've ever seen, um, where a man was, it wasn't an exception of substance uh, because, uh, in, in his view, saying that the Lord's Day could be any day of the week, not the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. That, and that was the first time in my life that I've ever heard that kind of uh, attack against the fourth. The, to me, that was a direct attack of, against the fourth commandment. Right. I don't know how you took that. Well, it is. It's against the uh, scriptures, and it's back to the matter of what we mentioned earlier with hermeneutics, You know that uh, you can arrive using a, whatever your hermeneutical principles are to look at the scriptures and arrive at that conclusion mm-hmm. that there's not one specific day in... With a host of other issues, I mentioned intinction, that you could conclude that intinction's allowable. Um, and it troubles me because when, and that's why we re, we have this review, because then you have 
We're trying to maintain a doctoral integrity and a continuity within a denomination. Why don't you tell the listeners what exactly the review of presbytery records right. does? Well, it's uh, it's the review and control that we hold to in Presbyterian polity. So it begins with a local session. Their minutes are reviewed by the presbytery. You know, do we do things biblically and constitutionally? Everything in good order, and it's, there are certain things that are reported to the presbytery so that they can keep up with mm-hmm. you know, that. You're as a session, you're doing your due diligence, uh, largely following the BCO chapter twelve, and then likewise, the presbytery's minutes are sent upward to the pres uh, to the general assembly. And I'm thankful that the general assembly uh, they used to meet during the week of GA. Yeah, too too and much. It just, there was no way. I mean, we're we're getting the report late Thursday, even Friday morning, and it's there. It is vote on it, and now they're meeting earlier in May, and the report's out. It's distributed in the supplement. There's time to look over it, to prepare, and that's very helpful. And it's a large report, for the listeners' yes. sake. It's, it's 75, 80, 90, upwards of 100 pages at times. Right, because you're looking at about 80 presbyteries. Minutes are being reviewed, yep. and uh, three to four minutes uh, per year. Sets of minutes per year. It's a lot to go through. Yep. And then they, they go through, you know, two or three men, I think, look at each one. I think it's two, look at every set, and then they report uh, to their committee. And there's discussion about whether things should be, and then they formulate the recommendation to the General Assembly. Yep. Our own Dr. Ben Shaw, who's a, an associate professor here at the seminary, he was on RPR, Review of Presbyterian Records. Sorry, we're speaking. We're in that club language again. <laughs> Review of Presbyterian Records, he was on it um, this year, um, and I think he was on the Minority Report for that one issue that I'd right. raised. But how do you think that that particular issue, um, what tone does it set for the denomination in general? It was pretty widely accepted as not a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I guess in charity, I'm trying to think, maybe the guys just didn't understand what exactly they were voting for. Right. But there it was in black and white, and right. there was a very well-read and uh, delivered speech from the, uh, the the head of the minority report, the one who gave it. Right. And how do you feel that that's the, – what does that say about our denomination when it, when it comes to this issue? Well, for me, Bill, it goes all the way back to the 2000 Assembly in Tampa when the, the committee brought their uh, creation mm-hmm. study report. And uh, in it, uh, they, they, they researched the denomination. We have four views within the denomination, which is no doubt true. I think they did find in that report that uh, the six little 624-hour creation uh, was the confessional view. Um, I can't remember what the recommendation was uh, at this point, but the uh, study committee is, is uh, the statement is it's in theses delivery. It doesn't have any binding power, but what happens is people act like de facto it becomes part of the Constitution. And so now those four views that were mentioned in there are okay. Now, at that time, we said theistic evolution is absolutely out of order. I mean, they were adamant mm-hmm. in bringing the report and discussion on the floor was, no, we're never going to go there, but we're there. And I think the reason we're there is because, as a denomination, we said that there you can have your hermeneutic can be such that you can arrive at four different conclusions on creation. In, in a sense, we're saying to the denomination, we're saying to the people in the pew that you know God created the earth in four different ways. Yeah, it creates confusion. That's that's a n- nonsense. Yep. You know, God did it one way, and we need to establish, you know, from the scriptures what that one way is, and anything else is an exception. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, typically do that. I was in Central Carolina Presbytery, and within a year we had our own report, and we took that position. The Westminster Divine said, 624, anything else is an exception. And I think it's a good, helpful thing. What we went on to say is, 
anyone who has an exception, they are to interact with Scripture and to deliver a three- to five-page paper per mm. exception, interacting with Scripture of how they arrive at their view. And then it makes it easier for the presbytery to evaluate that instead of trying to figure it out on the floor, which is what we're doing. We eat up a lot of time, and I'm sure presbyters say, yeah, we eat up a lot of time trying to understand the view and then decide what we're going to do with the view. We got it front-loaded. Those things out went out at least two weeks before presbytery. Yep. That was helpful. But back to the issue, though, I'm, you know, as a denomination, we're schizophrenic, and it's this hermeneutical thing that a number of views are allowable, and we see it in the Sabbath. Um, and as one of our graduates actually said at the last General Assembly that he was at as a presbyter, he went to another denomination, but he said, you know, if we keep allowing exceptions in this area, that eventually there'll be enough men in the, pres- in the denomination, Presbytery General Assembly, that they'll no longer be viewed as an exception. And he's absolutely right. Yep, and I think right. we've had this, this creep that has occurred. We've been incrementally moving away from being confessional. Yep. And so... It, we should only expect to see more things like this. So thankfully, we've not seen more wild and fantastical things than we are seeing. Yeah, yeah. We're going to come back to that issue of the con- of confessionalism in a second, but I just wanted to get your take on that one issue. I know I was a little, I was personally bothered by it because, again, I think it was the first time I've heard all the other exceptions, and I don't like them either. Um, I didn't take any exceptions to the standards when I was ordained. Um, I mean, I didn't. I was actually expecting pushback. <laughs> what? No exceptions? They're so everybody's so right. used to hearing them. I didn't have any, and but nobody gave me any grief. But that one really did trouble me a little bit because it was right. It was fun, fundamentally rewriting the fourth commandment in a in a way that I had never seen before. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Covenant Seminary and their change of their systematic theology department. That the name anyway. Right. All right. They, uh, we were told that, uh, that they've renamed the systematic department to Missional Theology Department. And, of course, uh, there were certain men that triggered in on that, and they should, because it's, it's kind of a nebulous word. Mm. And I'll tell you, I, I only know just a limited bit, and I, I did a little research preparing for today to, you know, what is missional? And I was reading uh, Alan Hirsch. Um, in, I think, Christianity Today back in 2008, and then Pathos in 2012 had a a look at it as well. And by no means am I sure what I'm talking about. One of the things that in what I did read is there seems to be some connection in my mind with what I read for these men who are involved in it uh, with the egalitarianism of our day, you know, that there's, there's not a liking the distinction of the minister, the office bearers, and the people. And uh, there seems to be something of that uh, we all need to be missional. And that's true, and we're all called to be disciple makers, but there is a distinction in offices and therefore in function. And to me, what, what I did read, this seems to be some pushback against that hidden within this, or not maybe even hidden, but just as part of it. And I would encourage you, Bill, to have uh, someone on and, and and flesh this out. I'd like to learn more about it. I'm, I'm no doubt I'm going to do some more research because it's troubling. And, you know, so the, one of the things I read, you know, the man said, I'm hearing all these things that missional means. And he says, I'm kind of in on the front end of it. I And what they're saying is not right. And yeah. so, you know, you're reading one of the originators, him saying what it is and what it isn't. And, uh, and when I read those things, it just left me dumbfounded, really from these men who picked up why would we change the name of the systematic department to missional yeah uh, it um i was thankful on the floor though it didn't get it didn't just get slipped through, it didn't just slide on by there was a few pushbacks from the floor uh like why are you doing this and mm-hmm. and uh, the president of covenant seminary with all due respect did i, I think 
the best he could to answer the questions that were presented. And in fairness um, to Covenant Seminary, um, they're not changing the courses. They're just changing the name. But, Chris, I, I, I'm with you. I, I, my big question is, why? Well, in a, with a name like that, it has meaning. And right. how long before that leads to changes in the courses? Yeah, is it a slope? I don't know if it's slippery slope. I'm, and a lot of people talk about that. And I'm, I shy away from that language. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I don't. I know it's a reality that it happens, but uh, I just think it's unhelpful. Yep. Yeah, uh, we did the most recent faith and practice, which the listeners um, we have to wait for because of the way the order of the programs are laid out in front of me. Um, but Dr. Piper made the same comment about the missional issue and made the same statement you made about getting someone on to really dig, dig into that. You know, this what is this whole whole idea of missional? Right. What does that mean? What, what's the implications? What's the motivation? Right. And I think your listeners need to be informed of it because it's here. It's with us. It's not going away. Yep. I, I believe uh, a few years or so ago, I, um, I heard that it originated at Fuller Seminary is where the, the word first began to be used and, and championed. And so that intrigues me. I and mean, there's much certainly that can be explored in this. And you can't believe everything's on the internet, but uh, there are things on the internet. Consider the source. I think pathos is a worthy source. Uh, Christianity Today is often helpful. Kind of gives a heartbeat on the evangelicalism mm-hmm. and what's going on there. And the key, in, too, when you get this, these kinds of things off the internet is look for corroboration, mm-hmm. um, independent corroboration. Right. Um, usually helps. Don't just find something that feeds your what you think is right or going to be. Or feed right. your opinion and post it all over Facebook yep. as fact because yep. you, you might be embarrassed. Yeah, be willing to, to find something that knocks you off your hobby horse and yes, say, exactly. okay, I was wrong. <laughs> exactly. And we've all been there and seen it done. So, of course, the big issue was the one that was near and dear to both of us. Um, we both served on the admin committee. So why don't you, Daniel, um, explain to the listeners the process. Sure. Uh, why do we have these committees during GA? Sure. What, are, what are they there for? And what are they responding to? And, and then specifically talk about the the our committee that we served on. Um, and we're not going to talk about the PCA logo and all that business. That's right. all. Who cares? But less than, and then we'll talk about the Women's Study Committee right. specifically. Well, I'll draw a distinction um, between the OPC and the PCA. The OPC has committees, and they, the committees, report and make recommendations to the General Assembly. In the PCA, um, we have standing committees um, with uh, denominational employees, and, and, of course, there's more than in the OPC. Some of that's because of our size. Um, they make a report, mm-hmm. but they do not be, bring any recommendations directly to the floor. The recommendations from the standing committees and permanent agencies like the Seminary, Covenant College, and MTW, just those, they come through a committee of commissioners, which are men that are commissioners to that General Assembly, who are then by their presbytery assigned, appointed to specific committee of commissioners to review the work of the denomination, the particular one that they're on. And so then recommendations come to the floor, and they can modify it. There's rules governing what they can modify, how much they can, they, whether they can be substituted, and it's... Convoluted. It is. <laughs> um, you need to spend some time just studying how that works if yes. you're going to do that. But nonetheless, so this one, what made, to me, more than the call for the study committee, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly I have friends and so forth that are very much against the study committee. I am too. 
Uh, I don't think we need to study it. You know, if, if as we heard, you know, men say, I just don't understand this. Like, get open your Bible, you know, maybe you need to go back to seminary. You know, this is not a new issue. This is not a new issue. There's plenty of material by good, solid, reformed scholars that will speak to the issue. But nonetheless, uh, what concerned me was how it came to us. Yeah. Because uh, a number of years ago, for whatever reason, um, we decided we were going to have uh, a committee, a cooperative ministries committee. And at the time, I was serving on the, as the Committee of Commissioners uh, several times in a row for administration. And um, it's part of our history. I don't think I'm being scandalous here, but there was bickering and a lack of cooperation, which maybe is a good thing, uh, between the various committees and agencies. And it was to hope, the goal was to have more cooperation work together. And so the, the heads of each of the permanent committees and agencies are on it, as well as the past six moderators. So you have a moderator coming on and a moderator rotating off every year. So there's a little continuity there as well. And there to promote cooperation predominantly. Well, let me say what they're not to do. They're not to bring changes to the Book of Church Order. Changes to the Book of Church Order come up from the presbyteries often originating in a session, and then it's you know either approved or disapproved in the presbytery, whether it's a good idea or not. And so that's part of what's odd. And so the request for the study committee came out of the Cooperative Ministries Committee, which reports to or is connected to uh, the AC. It's not even really a committee of the denomination. It's a, a subcommittee, if you will, and it's certainly from its inception, you can read when it's set up, you can read in the, the uh, rules of assembly operation, they, they're a different sort of thing. Yep. And yet here we have this coming in. And that was challenged, the, the legitimacy of it, whether it was good order, uh, that indeed it was the chairman was asked or the moderator was asked to rule it out of order because, in my view, it was out of order. And yet it was ruled that it was perfectly legitimate. And I think then also within the request for it, uh, there were multiple steps that seemed to have conclusions as to what this committee would, this study committee would bring back, including potential changes to the Book of Church order and pastoral instruction to the church and so forth, which to me is presumptuous. Mm. And everything is like that said as well on the floor of the assembly. And uh, as a side note, at that point in the debate, the confessional guys, um, I think, did not help our cause in dealing with the issue. Uh, we got speeches against having women in office and so forth. And, you know, there was a sense in which we were debating that we had recommendations to change the Book of Church order to have women in office. That was not what was before us. And that's, you know, if I can be so as bold to say to, you know, like-minded men, let's stay on the issue. We appreciate it when the when everybody else does stay on the issue, and, and let's debate, you know, the matter of how this came to us. And we tried to do that, and then uh, slipped over into the other. So that was the the real obnoxious aspect of it. And I, I do think it's out of order. I hope they never bring it in order. You know that that's, that ever happens again. But you know, precedents get set, yeah. and um, well, you mentioned the you mentioned the the the, the process, and I think. David Hall wrote a, a fantastic article dealing with this issue, um, the two process. Of them He's written two of them now. And we've interviewed him, and where he goes much further, uh, again, you have to stay tuned. Actually, you have to stay tuned at, because I'm going to release the David Hall interview the same day I release this interview. Um, so they're going to be back-to-back. So you can go 
finish this one and then go listen to David Hall. He actually goes much further than he did in his articles uh, dealing with the process. Right. And, and so I want to summarize real quick what Daniel just said. Um, historically, the PCA has been, is known as a grassroots, does things through the grassroots operation. That means bottom up. Bottom up. And what happened is the administrative committee that, that he and I served on um, received the top-down recommendation, recommendation three from a permanent committee to possibly change the BCO, to uh, erect a study committee, to send out a pastoral letter. We, we were concerned with some of the issues of maybe the theological cart was before the horse, and mm-hmm. they had already made their conclusions before they had the permission to make the conclusion. Right. Um, a lot of that was debated, and what Daniel's saying is that the real issue here, I think, is what you're saying, is that the process was messed up from the beginning. In fact, that was what we said, I believe, when we voted 31 to 7 to reject the Women's Study Committee recommendation. Right. And one of, our argu- one of our rationales was that this is not the way we do things and to remind the Presbyterians that we do it the other way. Well, to remind the permanent committee. To, that's right, remind the permanent committee. Well, I'm reminded, Bill, I, I did my polity instruction under Dr. Smith who was very much involved in writing the Book of Church Order, yep. who has written the only commentary that I know of on the Book of Church Order, yep. served as a stated clerk for 15 years, the first 15 years of the denomination, and I'm thankful to have received instruction from him. But I can remember him saying that you need to know the Book of Church Order, the rules of assembly operation, and Robert's rules. You know, there's tremendous ability to get things done or help keep things from happening if you know those things. Yep. And... Uh, uh, for example, uh, I don't remember which issue, but it was obvious to me from the floor debate that the vote was going to be against me, that what I was in favor of was not going to happen. So I voted with the majority because under Robert's rules then, if you voted with majority, then you can make a motion later on to revisit the issue, to reconsider. You can move to reconsider if you voted with the majority. And sometimes there's an opportunity. You detect a, a change in the makeup of the court, and you can move to reconsider, and now you might get a reversal that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And it's those sort of things that you know I learned from Dr. Smith, that if you're mindful of those things, yep. then you can sometimes have the sway and accomplish at least what, in your opinion, uh, would be a better outcome. I'll take that as a speech that I need to go revisit Robert Robert's rules. Well, you don't, in, in you don't revisit. Future. I mean, I think I need a degree in Robert's uh, rules. It's a it's a little tome. Well, I tell you, one of the one again to to plug the seminary a little bit. Um, we are a podcast of of Greenville Seminary. One of the things that we do do here in our ecclesiology and polity class is um, Dr. McGraw uh, is is he's he's he teaches that class, and every year he brings in. Um, uh, a certified pol- parliamentarian, Lane Keister, and he does an entire class on Robert's rules, what you can and cannot do. He doesn't cover every detail because you can't. It's a, it's it's, a it's detailed a- thing. But he gives you the nuts and bolts of surviving Presbyterian General Assembly right. and knowing how things work, and it's so valuable. So, Daniel, what you're saying is, is very good, helpful. Interesting side note, where I'm living in Rhode Island now, we visited Bedford, Massachusetts, and there's a fort there that goes way back, and it was used, I think, also in coastal defense during World War II, maybe World War One, but it goes back to the Civil War. And uh, Robert, of Robert's Rules, was a captain. He was a, an engineer involved in you know the building and fortifying of that. And it's interesting, there's a plaque there that, that mentions that he is the author of Robert's Rules, which yeah. is now in its, I don't know, 10th edition or something. I'm, I Maybe I should know, but it's not that important. But yeah. It was just interesting to find that this man has a, an architectural engineering sure. background. Yep. 
Yeah, it, it, it's very important. I think he wrote it because he was tired of all the bickering and the not getting things done in an orderly way. Mm-hmm. I think that's how it came to be. The, the vote on the floor, you were on committee. Uh, it was overwhelming. No. 31-7. Uh, no way. Forget it. We don't need to study this. As you've already said, it's been studied ad infinitum, ad nauseum probably. Um, were you surprised by the response of the, of the, of the assembly, the, the vote? I don't know. Um, my sense is that the denomination was ripe for a study committee. You know, we've managed not to have study committees for several years on the matter of deaconesses, so-called you know, women in that office, which is unbiblical. Um, but there's been an effort for that, and we did you know, make a tweak to 9-7, and things kind of been quiet. But the sense was this is going to come back, and yeah. there's, uh, for whatever reason, there are those that think a study committee is helpful. And I generally do not find them helpful. I, I can't say I do not. I and mean, when I was a brand new ruling elder, I remember reading position papers uh, from the early times of the, the founding of the denomination, and I found several of those very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's even one on this topic, if we care to go read our history. Yep. Um, so they're certainly related to it. I think some study committees can be helpful. I don't know that this one particularly is going to be helpful. Good example. The insider movement. Yep. That was very helpful. helpful. I mean, how many of us understood that? It was a very helpful study committee. Yep. They did good work. It was a good production and very useful to the church. And that, in my mind, is what a study committee needs to do. This is something new that's important. How do we answer it? Yep. Whereas the matter of women in office, this isn't anything new. Uh, the church has had a position. I'm going to say the, the Orthodox Church. You know, I'll be so bold. The Orthodox Church has had a position on women's office because the Scripture is clear on the position. Yep. And uh, you know, I think the, it was disingenuous to, to hear comments, uh, even from men that I know, to say, you know, your, your wives and daughters, you know, I've talked to them. You know, the, and, and they certainly haven't. It certainly was hyperbole, and it was uncalled for. And um, the church has a position. The scripture has a position, and we need no other position. And I, I just am concerned. I'm very encouraged to know that some of the men that are on that, and, and one of the women, I, I have enough awareness of her writings that they're not in favor of women officers. And and to, for me, whatever you may think or others may think, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to bring back recommendations to introduce women as deacons to the domination. I don't think they're going to do that. They told us they were not going to do that. Mike Ross was very explicit that this is not yeah. what this is about. Yeah, he was. As a past moderator who's on the CMC, I take him at his word. I believe him. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what they're going to bring. Um, we'll see. Uh, that's my position. I'm, I'm going to wait and see now, if it's – it may be something very helpful. I think in the debate on the floor that the things that alarmed – the one thing that alarmed me, I think, a little bit, and it was pointed out. Um, it was one of those times where you can just sit on your hands, wait for somebody else to say it because you're already thinking it. It was one of those moments. And it, the arguments that our ladies in our churches don't know what they can and cannot do. Right. And I was alarmed by that because of the fact that if that's the case, then the elders in the church are not teaching their ladies what they can and cannot do. And that was pointed out. Right. Would you you agree with that? Right, right. If, if there's a lack of clarity, then the man who's the minister of the Word needs to open the Scriptures and instruct the church. Yep. And he doesn't need to wait on a study committee report to do that. He's got his Bible. Um, he's got his language tools, hopefully. He's got his commentaries. You know, instruct the church. I went home and asked my wife. I said, are you confused as to what you can and cannot do in the church? She says, no. I said, if you ever become confused, what would you do? 
She says, I'd ask my elders. I said, well, I'd probably ask you. You're the pastor. But, I mean, I, I, she goes, I have the advantage of living in the same house with the pastor. I right. can always ask you your opinion, as it, as it were. Right. I said, gee, isn't that, that's a novel thought, right? I, and that's what I would encourage ladies, if you're listening to this program, and, and you are. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, this would be helpful. I don't know. But have you sat down with your elders? Have you sat down with your husband and had these conversations? You know, what can I do? What can I do? What am I not allowed to do by Scripture? What am I allowed to do by Scripture as a woman in the church? Because you're valuable. You're necessary. A healthy church cannot be healthy if the ladies in the church are not doing what God has called them to do. Right. So it's important, but I'm not sure we need a study committee right. to ascertain what that is. Um, I do think there's confusion within a denomination, uh, not only about what women can do, but what unordained individuals can do in right. a matter of worship and worship services. Yep. And again, there's no need for confusion. You know, we have not. a long history uh, of confessionalism and thoroughgoing biblical exposition to answer those questions. Um, And it comes back to, I'm thinking back when Greenville had the uh, spring conference on the sufficiency of scriptures. And uh, the real question that we need to answer as a denomination, and again, this relates to, you know, what I keep going back to, the hermeneutical trouble within our denomination, is the scripture sufficient for the 21st century? You know, do we need to add to? I just was reading Proverbs 30 a couple days ago as I was reading through the Proverbs again, and I think it's verse 5. Don't add to the Word of God. Yes, yeah, the Bible relevant. Right. That we're, we're, we're constantly pushing up against that. You know, how do we make the Bible relevant? The fact is the Bible is always relevant. It's timeless. Yep. It's the enduring living yep. Word of All God. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for doctrine and proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Yep. Always. And your problem and my problem and every human being's problem is we're sinners. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's the call to submit to what God has said. Yep. yep. Um, and, that, you know, from the garden, that was a problem. Hath God really said? Yep. You know, that is that is the perennial problem. And I'd like to think, and I, and I want to charitably think that our elders are saying exactly what has God said? That's the final word. That is what matters. And that's what I hope the study committee will bring back is a, a thorough, clear, you know, helpful. I mean, there's no doubt there are people in the PCA that need that instruction. They should be getting it from their pastors. Perhaps this report can be helpful. It remains to be seen. And we can pray to that end now that it's going to happen. And um, Christ is still the head of the church, and we voted, and it didn't go my way, um, I voted differently, and uh, I voted with the 31. Um, be that as it may, we're Presbyterian, so we right. submit to our, the will of our brothers in these issues, and we don't gripe and complain. As you know, Critiquing it is one thing, uh, analyzing it's one thing, but grumbling and mumbling about it, and right. you know, it, that's a different issue. And I don't think we're doing that now. We're just trying to say, at the end of the day, this could be helpful and we hope it is yep. helpful if we're going to do it. And that's, indeed, let us pray for those men and women on that study that's right. committee. Uh-huh. That's right. Just an issue that I've noticed at GA, Daniel, and I'm sure you've seen this before, and I'm troubled by this. Um, whenever it comes to the controversial issues like uh, the Women's Study Committee, um, the, the issue we haven't dealt with yet and we're going to deal with in a second, the, racial over, the overture on race reconciliation, it seems to me... Uh, that the votes are the numbers the total tally of the votes is substantially higher during those issues than during the what we might call the run of the mill mundane things right. uh, 
have you noticed that? Yes. And, and if you and it, why do you think that is? Other than the obvious, well, people love controversy. Well, you know, there's. I think some men come to have their voice heard on a particular issue. I can remember an assembly before we had our digital do- voting devices, where we still raised our cards and it'd be close, and we'd have to have the floor clerks count. You know, we'd still get actual counts, and it'd be close. You know, I can remember we were coming to one of the mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. controversial issues. It was up, and uh, it was after lunch, and there were men not on the floor, and it was announced that okay, now we're going to take up and I saw men quickly run out and get people and gather them in from the halls and bring them in uh, because it was important to them to be there on that topic and I understand that you know there's certain things that we want to make sure that we're involved in I have tried to discipline myself to be in there whenever the work of the court is going on you know that's why I've been sent uh, by my church to be there and uh, and so yeah it's it is you know, we want to be involved and make sure we get our vote in on particularly the hot button issues. Yep. And to be charitable, I mean, I, I was talking with some of the guys about this at GA, and there's a couple possibilities. Um, maybe they were there, just didn't vote. Possible. Um, or they weren't there, they were doing something else. And what you just said about, you know, your church sent you, they're paying for it, they're doing This is why you're there. Um, so th- there's a question of faithfulness here, mm-hmm. I think, to do the work, all the work, not just the ones that are exciting. Right. And so I'm troubled by that a little bit because the numbers were very different. There were 400-plus mm-hmm. total disparity yeah. between yes. the regular mundane stuff and the, and the, the big right. issues. The recommendations from Covenant College and Committee on Discipleship Ministries and you know, um, Ridge Haven – these different things that they're all important votes. You know, the recommendations matter, and they do. We should be there to vote as That's commissioners right. on those matters. Thursday night, we dealt with the one that everybody was waiting for. Um, the, the women's study committee was big, but this one was the big emotional overture that was that started last year. Uh, we got to it late Thursday. I think we didn't get, get to it until after dinner, mm-hmm. after the worship service Thursday night, if, if memory serves, and, and we were there till right up to the midnight right um, i admittedly i left about 10 minutes to 12 i'd had it i was exhausted and and other matters but um you're talking about last year no i'm talking about this oh, year this year even okay. this year okay um so we dealt this year that was a uh, was it 40 overture 43 i believe was that's the, the one they brought because there was a, the one they a brought long list of them right there was a litany of overtures from various presbyteries on the issue of race reconciliation and particularly um, during the civil rights era, because we've had two other statements, mm-hmm. uh, overtures and statements have mm-hmm. been adopted by the PCA. Um, and no, no doubt there's there's some warrant to all these things. This one particularly concerned that during the civil rights era, not the civil rights movement, I'm glad that that wasn't you know, that specific, but during that time frame uh, that there was um, – a lack of involvement and a lack of a voice uh, yep. to speak up for our brothers and sisters uh, of the African-American community in the way that people were being treated and so forth, in in a sense to apologize, ask for forgiveness for that. That was the substance of the overture. And with also concrete steps of trying to work towards uh, better uh, relationships between the races. It wasn't just two um, because you know racism isn't unique to white Anglos, and it's not unique to African Americans. It's Asians right across the spectrum. Whatever right. our people group is, there's, there's a trouble with that. Yep. Yeah, but when in the house of God, there shouldn't be. No. You know, Ephesians 2, the middle wall of separation yep. is broken down. Yep. 
So, so the issue of Overture 43 was that we were going to repent uh, corporately uh, over sins committed uh, even prior to the PCA even being founded. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your take on that? I mean, I'm not saying how did you vote. I know how I voted, um, but it was a pretty large majority that said, yay, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, fine, great. Um, what was your take on that? I think it was important for some men to have that statement made. And again, um, I'm going to go back to hermeneutics. You know, there's there's a theological issue. Is, there is. What is the appropriate, how appropriate is it for a denomination to make these statements? And, and how helpful is it? And, and it, could it be even unhelpful? Mm-hmm. Because uh, let's just uh, theoretically say there's a man who's there, he's a commissioner, uh, who had much racial sin in his heart, and he still does. And, of course, Scripture calls him, him to repent specifically of his specific sins. And uh, BCO 38 provides a means for him to do that mm-hmm. and uh, to be specific in his own confession. So then we vote as a denomination he votes for, and, you know, has he done his duty? And I would say he has not. No. And so that's, to me, one of the dangers of passing things like that. If, if indeed, if a man votes for it and he has his own sins specifically, he needs to follow through then with that and, and go back to his court, uh, whether it be the session or the presbytery, and confess, come as his own accuser and, and confess his sins and stand for the, the judgment of the court on those matters. So I, that's one aspect. Um, what was the other thing you were? Well, I was. Tr- you mentioned the theological issue, and I was a little troubled by the whole idea of corporate repentance. Right. Yeah, a lot of people vote, uh, look to uh, Daniel nine, where he prays a prayer of corporate confession. It's a different context, mm-hmm. um, very much so. Uh, some would say no, it's not. It's again, it's you know theological, exegetical. Is it a different or is it not? Some you know, point to that. Others don't. You see Nehemiah, you know, praying a corporate confession. Um, these men are. They're biblical characters. They're inspired. You know, can we learn from them? Certainly, but that's to me the thing I really grappled with: the the rightness. Uh, there were many, many men in our presbytery. I mean, our general assembly that they were not alive in the civil rights era. No. You know, one man went to the microphone and says, "You know, I'm in a mixed race marriage, and and I know full well what it is how you know people treat." And he said, "I am not a racist." I'm not guilty of this, and, and how can I vote for this? And, of course, people say, well, it's a denominational thing. But, you know, a man's conscience has to be clear right. that he votes for that. So, you know, those votes that were against it can be for a number of reasons. I think that I voted against it. I mean, I'll say that on the air. I don't, I'm not ashamed of it. Um, and here's my reason. I was, I was troubled by the idea that we are, as a denomination, repenting over something that the denomination has never sanctioned. right. And I thought, well, it'd be one thing if the PCA had been sanctioning these kinds of this kind of sinful behavior, and we're going to repent of it. Fine, I'm part of that denomination. Whether I whether I contributed personally to it or not, did I do anything to stop it? No. So it's a sinful mission. Yes, I need to repent. But in this situation, in the PCA, I didn't see, at least to my knowledge, I've been in the PCA since 1998. Um, I've never witnessed it a sanctioned move against any minority race or any other race. Right. And that was what bothered me, and that's why I felt compelled mm-hmm. by conscience to say, I'm not, I can't support something that I don't think we've done. Well, I think the thing to remember is the PCA was founded in 73. That's right. And uh, there were statements, you know, to connect us to the PCUS of old, uh, which certainly, you know, as Sean Lucas's book bears out, there were those who were guilty at that time. But uh, as a PCA... 
how do we apologize for the PCUS, which no longer, well, it, it doesn't really exist. It does not. You know, molded in with the Northern Church, yeah. the PCUSA. You know, yeah, we can't. 83. I can't confess your sins, Bill. I right. Mean, I just, I can't do that. You can't confess my sins. You know, so that's the question that some men grapple with as they consider that. And then the question is, did the PCA, you know, was the civil rights movement that was that era still on in 73? I don't know when, you know, who determines when these things end. You know, certainly there was still trouble in our nation in that era. But uh, I think the one question that's probably valid that, that I've heard from, you know, my brother's uh, of color is that uh, what have we as a denomination done to promote that? And I think in the 70s, there was still much work to be done. There's still work to be done today. Yeah, and I think that's an entirely different issue, exactly. frankly, than repenting corporately. Right. I think, okay, can we improve what we're doing? Sure. Can we? Are there other things we can do, but in a positive vein? Absolutely. Right. And that's one of the things that was in the the uh, resolution that was passed that I think was helpful is there was there was a couple of concrete things that uh, to move forward and 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 to be purposeful then to yep. to address these issues. Yeah, I could have supported a lot of the overture had they taken the corporate repentance idea off the table right. and and said, hey, we we just need to do a better job, and we always need to be doing a better job in a lot of different things, and this is not. Uh, this is not uh, an, an exception. We right. we need to be involved in, in improvement here as well. But I but I again I wrestled personally with just okay we're repenting as a denomination, but I don't know that the denomination right. is actually. I think done the, this. I think Dr. Piper made this in an earlier podcast the distinction between corporate repentance and corporate confession. Yep. And this was corporate confession. And corporate repentance is more difficult. Now, if indeed the PCA had a position that was racist. You know, then corporate repentance would be to strike that down and then begin doing the opposite of that. That's right. Uh, whereas corporate confession would be to acknowledge sins and the repentance would be walking that out as would be appropriate. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we need to understand that. I deal with that, you know, my local congregation. You know, I, repentance is something that I walk in a life as a Christian. Our life Every day. Is, our life is a life of faith and repentance. Yep. Putting off, putting Just on. Just told the congregation says, that Sunday. Um, right. You know, a mark of a Christian is he's daily repenting of sin. He's daily, daily fighting and working right. against sin. And when sin. we're mindful of our sin, you know, that, yep. that requires a confession. We go making confession. We deal to, with it. Uh, to the Lord and in cases where it's against some specific individual to address that. That's them. right. That's right. And so it becomes more challenging when you're talking corporately. You know, it so is. How do you work that out? And, and you have many, many men that were not alive then. And, you know, do we know the history then? Mm-hmm. You know, I read Sean's book. I thought it was helpful in reviewing history and filling in some gaps in my understanding of you know, late PCUS history and, and early PCA history and kind of, you know, the connection between those two men that came over. Yep. I think it was very helpful. Yep. Well, we're going long, but I do want to just get your take away from the health of the denomination in your opinion, of course. You've been in a long time, probably longer than, I think, longer than me. Since 92. Okay, so six years longer. Uh, where are we now? Like, it's the state of the PCA. I still am very optimistic for the PCA. I love the PCA. Um, if I think of someplace else I would go, there's very few options. I'm not eager to go. I love this church. I want to yep. see this church thrive I'm and with grow. You. I want to see it more biblical. Yep. Uh, I want to see us reformed and ever reformed. How do we do that? Well, I think it's back to one of the things I've said before, you know, qualified men in office. You know, I would challenge men who know their heart that they are not qualified, and I've met those men, mm. that they need to, with integrity, go to their session and hand in their resignation. And then maybe what that means is they spend a couple of years getting qualified if it's a lack of understanding. Or maybe they, you know, they would just say, you know what, I don't, 
I don't, I'm not been engaged like I should. You know, I meet the, the criteria of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, but I'm not really taking my work seriously. Well, then repent of that. And start, yeah, and, take and, it seriously. And, you know, get involved. Uh, go to the courts of the church. Be involved in the work. Uh, speak up. And certainly vote. Um, particularly, one of the things that grieves me is the, the lack of thoroughness and examinations in presbytery. You know, just to see men. I'm thinking my first pastorate. I had two. Well, actually, when I started, there's three ruling elders. Then I later became their their pastor, their minister. And uh, the times we'd be examining a man, and one of them would ask a question, or looking out, somebody else want to ask. Nobody else is asking questions. So one of the other ones. So we felt like we were tag teaming the candidates. The three of us sitting there, you know, hammering them questions, and we're waiting on the men. Elders, ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a study guide that uh, Brian Chapel and someone else, I, forget the, I don't remember the other man's name, but that they put together to help Meeks. men prepare. Yep. You know, get one of those. It, it'll feed you with questions to ask. Ask questions of candidates. Um, ask them confessional questions, constitutional questions, Bible knowledge questions. You know, if you need to bone up on your church history yourself, ask them church history questions. But we need to be much more thorough in our examinations. I read early American Presbyterian history, and it was not uncommon for a man to be examined for two days before he was approved. I, I'd love to well, see not, that happen in the PCA. Well, I'm, I'm glad you... Well, there's a part of me that would love to see that happen. There's the other part of me that would like not see it happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're already through. Yes, but I, I mean, I, I, I know it, 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 the, the way that things were done of old were, were probably very good and not taking anything away from that. I, I think there's a tipping point, and sure. we have to be careful. Um, we don't want to make the bar so high that nobody can be is qualified. At the same time, we want to... I think right now the bar is a little too low. Right. And, and I've seen, and I've been as a ruling elder, I've been part of floor exams with men who, for licensure, who should not have been passed. Right. Um, because we need they, to raise the bar. You know, they couldn't give the five points of Calvinism, really. I mean, right. they gave one. And this is seminary trained men, or they couldn't give the order salutis. And, or right, name the Ten Commandments. And couldn't, they couldn't point out where Paul, you know, on the Lord's Supper. Uh, where's Paul? You know those kinds of things. I mean, those should be like after after seminary, of all places. But really, those are like should be at your fingertips. I mean, I realize men get up in front of the presbyters and they're they're a little afraid and they get nervous. I, I was nervous. Everybody gets nervous. Um, know, another thing I'd say to any man who's heading that way or any officer right now, whether you're elder or deacon, read your Bibles. Yep. Read your Bibles. Yep. Read, read, read your Bibles. Yep. Um, That'll ne- we'll never go wrong doing that. It's the Word of God, and it'll help us to know the Scriptures, and we'll be better examining men. Yep. But I think that, to me, that is the bar that has to be raised. And I think, I'm thankful Greenville Seminary has contributed to that. Another positive thing, very positive thing, we were on a committee of commissioners for administration, and there's a much ballyhoo, mm-hmm. I'll use that word, about we need millennials involved in the PCA. Well, there were a number of men that are fit that criteria of being millennials in that room, and they're Every one of them was confessional. They were. Every one of them was confessional. Yep. Yep. And that's very encouraging to me. And a number of them are Greenville graduates. Yep. And uh, a small seminary that's having a growing impact. Yep. Uh, praise God for that. And um, you know, may the Lord bless these men to be faithful and guard them uh, that they should not be tripped up by the evil one. Yep. It's exciting. and But, it again, as you've said, it's a very high bar, high standard and you gave me an idea for a podcast as you were talking about that particular issue, actually. Um, I think it would be very helpful um, going forward. But where, just general, though, where's, where's the PCA health-wise? 
on a scale of one to five, five being we're great, we, no improvement needed, so we know we're not there. Well, then, uh, you know, I, I think it's probably three. You know, are, are we are we heading one direction or another? I don't, I don't think so. If 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 we are, it's incremental. In um, there's been times when I've been more discouraged. I've been more encouraged in more recent general assemblies as I've come away. Um, it remains to be seen. Uh, I think as to what's going to become of the church. Yep. I I'm think, optimistic. I'm hopeful. We serve a great God, and, yep. and we need to pray for our denomination. We need to pray for our denominational seminary, uh, that God will uh, work in them to be more reformed. Yep. Yep. You took the words right out of my mouth. That was, you know, we, we can all sit here and find the issues, and we don't like that. We don't like this. That's easy, frankly. Um, but let's pray about what's going on. Um, in labor, we're replaced in our little world. I'm in a little world. I don't know the size of your congregation but labor there faithfully and you know pray for the denomination pray for those that god's given us our has given us to to shepherd and care for inform the people um i go back every year and give a report um of what happened and not to scare them and sometimes it's hard not to editorialize it but i do it because i want them to be informed of what's going on in their denomination so they know how to pray intelligently for the denomination and another thing you know whether you're in the pca or not as a listener pray for your elders Mm. Mm-hmm. Pray for your pastor. Mm-hmm. Pray earnestly. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Pray for these men. Uh, there's a lot on ministers. A lot of pressure. Very much so. Daniel, any fi- final concluding remarks that you just have to say? No, nothing. Uh, nothing. I feel like I got to say. No, I think it, 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 a lot was said, and 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 we don't expect everybody to digest everything, all the little nuances. But you know, capture the big issues that we we're talking about. Um, you know, men trained for the ministry, called to the ministry, hermeneutically sound, going forward, uh, arguing intelligently from the microphone, not getting up there and appealing to emotion and making us all feel weird. Just, you know, use the scriptures, the BCO, the Constitution of the Church. Know it, digest it, live it, teach it, practice it, and and let that come out in the different courts of the Church. If we did that, we would be much better off than getting up and just winging it, right. which happens way too often. One, I think one last thing I'd say, again, I know that our listeners are for many different denominations, and you know, pray for the PCA, whether it's your denomination or not. The That's PCA, right. for its size, it's not a large denomination by any stretch of the imagination, but it does have a pretty significant influence amongst uh, evangelicals. Globally. Uh, globally in um, you know the, the work that MTW is doing uh, is global um, pray for uh, the MNA is mm-hmm. broad impact uh, through the various uh, different uh, subcommittees if you will or different areas of ministry so pray for the PCA I mean we, we hear from uh, fraternal delegates from other denominations and uh, they speak you know well of the the help that they are receiving uh, so the, particularly some of the men from overseas and uh, there's a there's a camaraderie, a respect, and a fraternal al- a feature. That's not what I'll just say. A brotherly connection. We'll forget trying to make up a word there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's only Doctor Curdo is allowed to make up words. Okay, um, but no, you're you're absolutely right. And we have about three hundred seventy five thousand members in the PCA. Um, Eighty three, no. 84 presbyteries now. Um, that's because some split. It's not because we actually gain more ground. Um, so. But yeah, but this has been good, Daniel. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you got a busy week ahead of you, uh, on top of everything else. Um, but I know you're excited about the class this week with Dr. Van Dixorn, and um, who is, of course, probably the leading scholar in the Westminster Assembly. 
live today. So, but I do appreciate your time, and it's been really good, edifying, I think, conversation, and, and pray the Lord blesses this conversation as well as the things that we've said going forward. Amen. Coming up on the program, uh, I do this every podcast and almost never know what's coming up, but I do this time. Um, I do, I think. Yes. Next week, Dr. Ben Shaw and Dr. Sid Dyer will sit down with me and talk about the importance of the biblical languages and how people not seminary trained can actually use them uh, to the best of their ability, the tools, the resources. In addition to that, they, they give great, helpful, practical advice on those going into seminary and how to prepare for the arduous task of learning Greek and Hebrew. If you think it's easy, <laughs> go to seminary and find out different. It's not a, it's not a picnic, and so they give some great advice on that. Following that discussion, uh, the week after is Dr. Ryan McGraw. He's going to sit down with me and talk about his little booklet, Is the Trinity Practical? I have already recorded this program. I cannot wait to release it. It was fantastic. It was so encouraging, so edifying. I'm going to listen to it again um, because uh, of the encouragement I received just from the conversation with Dr. McGraw. The week after that, Dr. Piper will be back on to do um, the ever-popular Faith and Practice program. So write in your questions. Go to the website, confessingourhope.com. There's a form there. Fill out any question you, you can think of. Send it in, and we'll deal with it. We've had some doozies throughout the 27 different episodes that we've done. So send them in, and uh, Dr. Piper will faithfully look into it, research it, and answer your question on the air. If he does, you get $10 off at the Banner of Truth. So it's a win-win scenario for anyone who sends in a question so that's what's coming up a little highlight there's more on tap and um, i've done a bunch of recordings already that haven't even made to the website yet so keep looking at our website confessingourhope.com and until next time we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of confessing our hope the podcast of greenville presbyterian theological seminary and god bless